There's a tendency sometimes in political and policy discourse to think of migrants in these very simplistic ways. So an unskilled migrant or a refugee is going to be a burden on the system and an economic cost. A skilled migrant is going to be an economic contribution. But obviously there's a lot more nuance, it's a lot more complicated. Hello, I'm Dallas Rogers and you're listening to the Conversation Speaking With podcast. We have a proud record of welcoming people from 140 different nations, but we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. The issue of migration has dominated Australian political discourse for well over a decade. But while the focus has been on asylum seekers and border protection, the nature of migration and the makeup of migrants have changed markedly. And this has had a far greater impact on the economy and society than boat arrivals. I'm speaking with Shanti Robinson from the Institute for Culture and Society at the University of Western Sydney about the changing face of migration in Australia and the complex relationships between governments, migrants and commercial industries throughout the migration process. Migration is both big business and small business. It's affecting both macroeconomies and microeconomies. It's not just about the relationship between migrants and the governments of the different countries they want to move between. There's also a whole bunch of formal, informal, legal, illegal, big and small corporate interests that are impacting on migration processes. For much of our history, the majority of arrivals to Australia have been permanent settlers. But today, with the availability of a wider range of visas, an increasing number of temporary migrants are heading for our shores. The visa landscape in Australia is getting increasingly diversified. So we have a lot bigger range of visa categories than we used to in the past. And the big trend we've seen in the last 15 years is a switch from permanent settler migration towards much more temporary forms of migration. So we have much higher number of people coming in now on temporary visas, which obviously changes a lot of questions around settlement, around people's experiences when they arrive in Australia. This change in the makeup of arrivals along with the increasingly complex migration laws, have resulted in industries that provide a variety of services during different stages of the migration process. It's like a microeconomy that is often forgotten in the debate around migration. When we think about migration, we think of it as sort of a relationship between a person who wants to move cross borders and the state who kind of makes the decision who can move, how they can move and how long they can stay for. That's a very classic idea of understanding migration. But what we're seeing happening today is actually a really burgeoning commercial industry that underpins these processes. So in terms of facilitating mobility, uh, you have a lot of commercial agents that actually help people to move. These might be agents, migration lawyers, labour recruiters, and even people operating in that illegal market, so smugglers and traffickers. And we've seen a huge kind of increase in these commercial enterprises in Australia. So, for example, there were about two and a half thousand registered migration agents in Australia 10 years ago. Now there's about four and a half thousand. So the industry is increasing in Australia, but it's also a transnational industry. So labour recruiters and migration agents often work transnationally. So migrants will engage 
with an agent or a recruiter in their home country and they then assist with their placement, assist with their visa and migrants and sometimes employers pay, pay quite a lot of money for these services. So this kind of challenges the idea of who's driving immigration in some respects? Absolutely, they're actually really important agents in the migration process. They can influence migrants' decisions about where they go, um, they can also have a really strong impact on what government does. Government's in the position of often having to regulate these commercial agents and obviously regulating transnational businesses is quite complicated. So they really do change the landscape, both in terms of the migrant experience and also in terms of the way we think about the way migration is governed and managed. The growth of these commercial industries has been partly helped by the privatisation of many migration services by governments. And with temporary migrants not being able to access government services, a new type of industry has had to emerge to fill that gap. So they might, for example, be businesses that assist them with job placement. They might be agents that help them to get their kids into schools. They might be um, real estate agents that specialise in providing accommodation for migrants or other kinds of housing service providers like hostels and boarding houses. They might be private corporations that provide language training or other kinds of cultural capital type training. And in the past in Australia, settlement services were usually provided by the government for permanent migrants. But obviously across the board, we've seen an increased privatisation of government services across all government services. And it's exactly the same in the migration sector. So these services are increasingly privatised and we also have increasing numbers of migrants who are on temporary visas and don't necessarily have access to government funded support services. So if you're a temporary migrant, you don't get any government sponsored English language assistance. You can't access Centrelink, you can't access Medicare. So that's when these kind of brokering businesses spring up. And lots of these businesses spring up from within the ethnic economy. So a lot of Chinese migrants are assisted with finding houses, um, with finding schools for their kids through businesses that are within the Chinese ethnic community. So it's transforming the ethnic economy as well. And it's not just about settling migrants into a new country. There is also a strong industry focused on helping migrants maintain links with their country of origin and with family and friends scattered around the world. There's a whole entire market and industry that helps people to maintain connections with their countries of origin and also with their families who might be dispersed around the world. So the remittance industry is the most common example that people talk about here. So these are institutions like Western Union, for example, that help migrants to send money back home. And this is a massive industry. We're talking billions and billions of dollars being transferred around the world by migrants who are sending money back to their families. But there are other forms of organisations that help facilitate transnationalism. For example, there's diaspora tourism where second generation migrants might want to travel back to the homeland and there's actually special travel agents and special tourist packages that are put together for them. There are agents that help you to facilitate transnational investment. So if you want to buy property or start a business overseas, there are agencies that actually assist you to do that. One of the more bizarre developments in the modern migration industry is the concept of birth tourism where predominantly wealthy pregnant women from countries such as China and Taiwan fly to America to deliver babies in the hope of providing flexible citizenship options for their children. This is just one of these really fascinating examples of how a quite a complex industry can grow up 
around a migration process. So birth tourism is a process in which women who are pregnant, and it's usually quite wealthy women from China and Taiwan, and they want their babies to be born in the US. This is so that the baby can have access to US citizenship, not necessarily to migrate permanently, but so that their child can have options, options to possibly study in the States or to use that citizenship to study in other countries, options possibly to start businesses in the US. And when the child turns 21, they might be able to sponsor family members for green cards as well. So it's not a very traditional linear pathway of migration, but it's kind of a family strategy to have more flexibility and more options. It's what's referred to as flexible citizenship. But basically, women who want to do this arrive in the US a little bit before their due date, have their babies there, stay for a while and then come back home. And this has created a massive industry that supports these processes. So families can pay somewhere between about $15,000 and $50,000 to an agency that provides all the services they need in the birth tourism process. Maternity hotels have started popping up in the suburbs around cities like Seattle and LA. And these are essentially private homes where pregnant women go to stay until they're ready to give birth. Not all services are centred on supporting migration. My name is Scott Morrison and I am the Minister for Immigration and Border Protection. You have been brought to this place here because you have sought to illegally enter Australia by boat. The new Australian government will not be putting up with those sorts of arrivals. Australia's strong stance on refugee boat arrivals, coupled with a move to privatise border protection, means there's a lot of money in the business of migration prevention. One place where there is a lot of money is the industry that tries to prevent mobility. So we can see this really clearly in the asylum regime in Australia. So again, it's part of a bigger story about privatisation. Um, the whole detention regime really in Australia is now contracted out to private providers. And trying to stop people from crossing borders has just become really, really big business for multinationals. The taxpayer still pays money towards these processes, but the private sector is really, really heavily involved too. So if we think about Serco, that's the company that holds most of the detention contracts in Australia. In 2009, the contracts that they had were worth over $320 million. And then you also have a multinational like G4S, who runs the detention centre on Manus Island. They also manage a whole range of services around asylum in the UK. So they manage detention, but they also manage housing of refugees and deportation. And there's so much money to be made, obviously, by these contracts. One issue I think that's of concern here is that when you have private contractors managing these systems, it makes transparency really difficult. And we've definitely seen that in some of the offshore detention centres in Australia. Again, it's a hybrid enterprise. You have the involvement of the Australian government. You have the involvement of the private contractor. You then have the local government where the detention centre is located. You have a whole bunch of different volunteer and not-for-profit organisations also operating in that space. So when something happens, when there's a breach of rights like the death of Reza Barati, it's really complicated to unpick where does the buck stop, who's responsible for this, where's the accountability. The debate around migration is usually framed around protecting local jobs and the burden on taxpayers, but Shanti Robertson says the issue is a little more complex than that. 
and the actual commercial and economic benefits of migration need to be factored into the argument. I think it's just a lot more complex than the idea of someone either being a burden on the state or a benefit to the state. And we often, I mean, I think there's a tendency sometimes in political and policy discourse to think of migrants in these very simplistic ways. So an unskilled migrant or a refugee is going to be a burden on the system and an economic cost. A skilled migrant is going to be an economic contribution. But obviously there's a lot more nuance, it's a lot more complicated. And we have to kind of think a little bit just beyond that relationship between the migrant and the taxpayer and actually think about these commercial enterprises, these changes to local economies, these changes to transnational economies, these hybrid entities where there's actually a crossing over between the functions of government and the functions of private enterprise and then obviously the kind of agency of the migrant links in there too. So it's just a more nuanced picture I think which is what I want to get across. Mm -hmm.